The Polystory Repository is a live conversation with polyamorous people sharing their thoughts on trust, intimacy, and relationships with themselves and others. They navigate a conceptually non-monogamous life, and we want to share their experiences with you. These are our friends, and these are their stories. Hello and welcome to another episode in the Polystory Repository. If you're just joining us, this is actually the second part of a two-episode conversation with Rachel C. In the first episode, we talked a little bit about her coming out experiences as an 18 and 19-year-old. Now we're going to continue on with her story into present day. But again, if you haven't listened to episode one, please go back to the previous episode and do so before listening to part two. Thanks again for joining us. So your early metamorph relationship sounded like it was a good example of how to learn from other people when you get to know them. How have your metamorph relationships changed since then? Does it still have the same amount of value to you? Has your philosophy on it shifted? Mm-hmm. I think that one thing about my philosophy around it that has definitely stayed the same or even like solidified more is the notion that I don't want my relationship or the strength of my relationship with my partner to have to inhibit or, or put limits around the relationships that they can form with other people. I think most people would refer to that as being primary partners and then having secondary partners. So maybe as a way to, to codify it for, for listeners and observers, um, if, if we go back to that first example of you having that terrible, awful night and calling your boyfriend uh, had, had you guys been in a dedicated primary relationship where there were rules, there might have been one that said, you always come first, even right. if I'm out with another partner. And I know people do things that way, and I don't want to throw too much shade that direction, but I just was thinking about how the woman that he was with would probably have just felt like she really got the raw end of that deal. And, you know, maybe she would have understood, but I mean, of course, if, I'm trying to think if I had like a life-threatening emergency and was in the hospital, like those can be extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. But uh, probably anything short of that, I also wouldn't begrudge her feeling like, you know, I just don't want to deal with this. This is making me, you know, feel less than. And I wouldn't have wanted her to feel that way. I didn't even really know her, but I just knew that I wouldn't want anyone, I wouldn't want my relationship to make anyone feel less than. So... Um, I think that gets back to where I was saying about how we met people who had a hierarchical model and people who Mm -hmm. didn't. And the way that I looked at it, and I still kind of look at it today, is um, if we're primaries and someone else is secondary, then they're secondary and you can't really get around that and what that means. And I it's always been really important to me that I feel like I have partners who are able to treat their other partners the way that they want to be treated. And it would be a problem to me, and it has been a problem to me in the past, which, uh, well, it's been a problem for sure if I observe that that isn't happening. And those are times when that's kind of been a sign that things needed to change. And, I mean, wanting it to be so doesn't necessarily make it so. It takes a lot of work, and I'm definitely not perfect, and my partners haven't been perfect either. So I'm not saying that. But that's where my intentions are. And I try to, for the most part, when possible, deep people who share that philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody acting as their own individual within that constellation. 
and leaving room for respect for everybody as well. It, it's it's a golden rule kind of thing, if I'm reading that right, where you, you want to treat people the same way that you would want to be treated. Definitely. And I was even thinking, like, so with this example of my first metamor, but I think this could also maybe apply to other instances, I can definitely imagine a world in which she would think, oh, yeah, I don't come first. I'm not supposed to come first. But who's telling her that? Like, if we're telling her that, I think that sounds pretty crappy. If society's telling her that, like, that also is problematic. So I just try to avoid that altogether. And I mean, even right now, I am, I guess I would just to paraphrase things, to sum it up, I'm in some relationships that really fit this non-hierarchical model well, and I'm in some that don't. And uh, in those cases where I'm dating someone who, you know, has a hierarchical relationship and thinks of me as secondary to someone else, I've told those people that it's important to me that I just be treated the way I want to be treated and that we set expectations around how I'm going to be treated. And I don't really care what you have to call it. And I don't really care what it means to you as long as what it means to me is being honored. Yeah. So what does your landscape look like right now? Like what, what, what is poly for you at the moment? Mm -hmm. Well, at the moment I am in two committed relationships. Um, one with my partner, Christopher, whom I live with, and then one with my partner, David, um, who lives in Chicago in another neighborhood. And then um, we're all dating other people too. Let's see. Well, so as I alluded to, David is the partner of mine who has a primary partner, you know, is, is a good friend of mine also, and someone who, you know, I'm not in a relationship with her, but she's definitely a big important part of my life. Christopher is dating other people. I'm also dating other people. There's a pretty new relationship that I'm excited about, but would feel like I, you know, wouldn't want to talk about in too much detail without checking with the other person first. Yeah. I've been thinking about this more lately, how just having two committed relationships and feeling like I really want to give both of them all the attention that I'm able to. And to show that in my mind, one isn't more important than the other. Um, that takes out a lot. And then I have like a full-time job. I have hobbies. I have like things that I care about and like, like to do in my free time when I have free time. And it's made dating a little bit more complicated in the past year. Now that I have these two relationships that I feel are really solid and are really going to require me to privilege them at times over, you know, making new connections. But making new connections is still really important to me, and it's also really important to my other partners. So we try to like give each other the leeway to do that. Now I'm more in the spot of thinking, okay, there you know might be a third person I could imagine being in a committed relationship with someday down the line. Am I able to do that? Can I have a committed relationship with three people and not make anyone feel less valued? I mean, they're not going to all look the same, but I don't, at least don't want anyone to feel like, oh, I'm not like her real relationship, right? Like they're her, you know, real boyfriends. I'm less real. Like I would never want to do that. Mm -hmm. That repulses so, me. So how do you manage that? We will see, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so far, so good. Um, I mean, I've just been really busy. I don't, I haven't, this is, that's, this, it's a very new thing for me that I'm figuring out, right? As I go along and... So far, it's been just being really busy and not taking a ton of free time to myself. And then when a night comes up, when I don't have anything going on, I'm like, yes, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Guarded with my life. Exactly. No, yeah. Instead, you end up talking to some chuckleheads on a podcast. Like, oh, good, oh, right. good time management skills there. <laughs> 
that's so funny. Don't let me in with you, with you Tim. I am ostensibly not a chucklehead. Uh huh. Sure. <laughs> Whatever. Man, so yeah, if you're if you're running around all crazy like and you don't take time for yourself, like how how do you keep yourself together? How do you take care of yourself like that? Do you just like light yourself on fire every morning and then run through the day? Well, um, hopefully my employers don't listen to this, but I'll say that I work from home and that's been super helpful that mm-hmm. um, I don't have like a commute to factor into my day. Um, if I need to take my lunch break and go run to the grocery store for 20 minutes, thankfully I live downtown Chicago. So there's, you know, lots of places to grab food. Um, I can really cut a lot of corners when I need to. Yeah. So I am employed as a journalist. I've been a journalist my whole career. And this is just for the past two years that I've been working from home. Before that, I worked in several different offices with several different types of news outlets. Um, And it's kind of, I think, one of the things that makes it an interesting profession, like sociologically, is that the news industry and the like institution of newsmaking is very conservative. They have really conservative columnists, um, some really conservative practices, really perplexing and not very forward thinking business model. But then I've also worked for like a nonprofit that was really liberal and really cared about fixing the New York City public education system through journalism. So you get a balance of like really idealistic liberals and then people who, where it's not just that they wouldn't necessarily approve of polyamory, it would probably be like a head scratcher. Like they wouldn't even really be able to wrap their minds around it. Or they'd say like, oh yeah, that's like a thing millennials do. That's like a millennial thing. So I I guess two questions. One, have you ever come out at work? And given that dynamic of, you know, the conservatives and the liberals, were you judicious about who you came out to? Okay. Well, so for my first job, I, it was my very first full-time job out of college, and I had moved to New York for it. And it was, at the time, really important to me to like fit in or feel like I fit in. And I had always gotten the sense that the um, women who hired me really like saw a lot of themselves in me, and they were in really committed monogamous Jewish relationships. I was like, I'm Rachel. Here's my you know Jewish boyfriend from college. And you know, nothing more to see here, move along. You know, I was 21. And then I, as I got a little bit older and like grew into my identity as a queer person and living in New York city, I was almost exclusively dating other queer people. I started uh, dressing in like a slightly more androgynous or more butch fashion and uh, cut my hair pretty short. Then my boss started to kind of get suspicious that I was like not fully presenting myself to her. Mm. So we had like a couple conversations where like I would refer to my boyfriend as my partner and she'd say, oh, you know what people will think when you say that, right? Huh. Yeah, they'll think I'm a dyke because I, I look like one because I am like, what, what is it to you? But I didn't feel comfortable saying that, right? <laughs> Where is this going? So when I moved back to Chicago, uh, right, I was here and then I was in New York. I came back a couple years later for another job and um, I just decided right off the bat, you know, I look like lesbian, I could kind of round myself up to that. Um, part of being queer for me, what's really important about that is that I don't think that the gender of the people that I date is particularly relevant. And so I would find like the identity lesbian a little bit limiting for me personally. But I figured, you know, that's how I present. That's that's what I kind of show to the world now. And I'm going to go with it. And I'm going to allow my coworkers to assume that about me. And then that way, I felt like 
and I still struggle with this, especially in professional settings where I'm like, they don't want to know. Like if I have to explain to them, like, you know, oh, I have this long distance boyfriend, but like I'm mostly dating women, you know, that relationship's really important to me still. But like, you know, oh, we're not even having PIV sex anyway. So it doesn't even count. Like I'm, I'm still basically a lesbian, right? This just seemed like way too much information. And then it also ended up as I evolved more with my sexuality ended up kind of not being entirely true. So then I found myself kind of pigeonholed at my job where uh, occasionally, let's see, like one time we were reviewing sex toys for Valentine's Day, which is not something that we would normally do in like our day-to-day operations. Like I was a breaking news reporter. I covered crime. I covered uh, transportation, cycling news, courts. Uh, oh, wait, so this wasn't part of some of your beat. You guys were just having a conversation. Oh, this was like, it was the a Valentine's Day issue, I'll just say, of the Red Eye, uh, mm-hmm. like a local commuter paper that's like a spinoff of the Tribune. And uh, we, it was like a whole staff, got a bunch of sex toys for free that we were supposed to review. And the features editor like emailed me and asked me like something like, oh, can, can you and your girlfriend review this strap on? And I was like, uh sure like i'll find someone <laughs> like i'll figure it out <laughs> like just just give it to me like we'll do it like i was like this token lgbtq person who could do the lgbtq coverage when it came up and could like you know be like a little sprinkling of diversity but i was just growing into this increasingly committed relationship with christopher whom i had met when i moved back there and then i had to kind of come out to the staff at some point during kind of some of the, I guess, conversations that would come up in like brainstorming sessions around different themed issues about relationships. And I just realized, you know, I I have to like hide this and it's becoming really awkward and clunky to hide that I'm in this relationship with a cis man. So I did say that eventually, I just kind of found like a very succinct way to put it. Like, yes, I am queer and I'm currently dating a cis man who is Christopher, who you see in like all my Facebook photos. So you know, nothing more to see here. Like, it's fine. And then when I got back to my desk, the person who sits next to me, uh, G chatted me immediately and said like, Oh, that's so brave of you. Like, I think it's so brave that you guys are non-monogamous. And I was just like, no, it's very selfish. I would like to have (laughs) all the relationships. (laughs) I'm very greedy. Uh, so was there yeah. was was there ever an occasion where you felt it was necessary to give your perspective because that might also be the perspective of some of the readership? That hasn't happened to me personally, but I um, I do always kind of bristle when I see coverage in mainstream news outlets about polyamory because I feel like a lot of them get it really wrong or they'll present it to try to be more palatable to a mainstream audience. They'll present it in this like very couple centric, um, very heterosexual manner. And I think that I would love it if someone asked me like, how do we make our coverage of polyamorous people better? Because I would tell them like, talk to more queer people, talk to people of color, talk to people who are in many different sizes and shapes of relationships and don't just say, okay, let's find like a very palatable looking white heterosexual presenting couple who are like in a triad or in a V and like, let's just profile them and show, you know, how they're just like everyone else. I've thought a lot about how I could write a personal essay and submit it somewhere about my lifestyle, about being poly or about being queer and poly. And I've stopped myself partly because I, 
have been waiting for the conversation in the mainstream media to evolve with polyamory beyond the model that I used to see all the time would be where like the lead or the news angle of the story would start out with, you know, meet Jill and Bob. They're just like you, except there's also Susan. She lives with them. Like They cook together. And then sometimes Bob sleeps in one bed and sometimes he sleeps in the other. Like there's just so much of that. And I, I know that, Uh, I'm not trying to like discount those relationships at all. When I say this, I just think that we need many different representations because that's the lifestyle for a very select few groups of people. And so I've always thought, you know what, once we evolve in the mainstream media, once the media evolves beyond this like fascination with that couple centric, like, look, they found a third model of polyamory, then I'll be ready to maybe tell a more nuanced story. Um, But I do think we're getting there. Mm. Uh, I, I'm sure both of you also follow the polyamory in the media blog and I've really, really appreciated being able to like be kept up to date to the way that the media is talking about us because it's kind of like these two different communities of mine, right? I'm like, okay, how are we talking about us? And mm-hmm. I do see it evolving, finally. You said the whole thing. It's, it's moving past the Will and Grace model, right? Yeah, good reference. Yeah, Thank it's you. like this normalization or this preconception of, you know, of course they're going to be white because that's what people are. And yeah, it, it's like a, a larger societal issue. But yeah, it, it's part of part of media representation. And I, I dare to say that's part of the reason we wanted to do a podcast. But yeah, <laughs> maybe that's a little too grand, but I don't know. Well, I think that like it's so boring and like, media outlets are really shortchanging their audiences when they say like, oh, this is the only type of alternate relationship structure, alternate kinship structure structure that's going to be legible to other people. It's like mm. if we give them, um, you know, just this this one type of thing, then like that'll be so much easier for them to understand than like, you know, the queer woman who's in two committed relationships with cis men, but is like, you know, pining after this, uh, you know, desire to also be with a woman and then on top of that has like a network of friends lovers occasional partners um is interested in having group sex is uh kinky is um you know looking into living in an intentional community in the future and finds uh the notion of growing old in a couple centric model to be just like antithetical to her values like that's a mouthful that's like a much mm-hmm longer conversation and that's been my struggle with identity and with like identifying myself to society at large and like you know to people of my parents generation is it just gets starts to sound so complicated and they're like why do you have to make it so complicated Rachel and then you know you find yourself having to justify who you are or you worry people like I, I maybe both of you can identify with this also but if anyone's ever like accused you of being greedy right or mm-hmm. being like oh you know why is that not enough for you yeah enough is a really bad question like mm-hmm. i would i thought about this and decided a while ago that i wanted to approach my relationships from like an assumption of abundance and a place of like you know what i have is abundant and what I can give to other people is abundant. And I don't need to worry about like, do I have the right amount or did I have enough or do I have less than someone else? Um, There's a writer I really, really love named Stephen Elliott. And 
Uh, he writes a lot about being in different types of non-monogamous relationships. And um, there's this quote that I like just had at the ready to pull up. So I'll, I'll read it if that's okay. Yeah, I love quotes. Yeah, okay. So Stephen Elliott, um, this is from his book, My Girlfriend Comes to the City and Beats Me Up, which is a collection of short stories. He says, some think that love is a finite resource like food. That love given to one person is love taken away from someone else. Others believe that the more you love, the more love you're capable of. So I read that when I was in college in a class, actually. It was a book that was assigned for a class in my uh, gender studies curriculum. And I just like fell in love with it. Like this sounds really full of it and I can unpack that a little bit, but I do think that I'm capable of more love. And I think that a lot of poly people who practice polyamory in a really ethical and true way are, have a group, like have like grown their capacity for love. It's like a muscle. Like you want to build a muscle, you have to practice it. And I think that that's a, you know, I'll, I'll like hedge that that's kind of a controversial point of view. And there's plenty to be said for the polyamory community trying not to present itself as like holier than thou or superior to monogamous people. I know that that's like not the way to convert people, but I do think that when you have to confront questions, like Tim was saying, like when you're facing questions about yourself and uh, putting yourself in situations that you don't have a good roadmap for, you are going to develop like a more diverse and valuable skill set for human interactions. And like, that is a good thing. So how do you think polyamory has changed you? Traditionally or typically, like in my childhood, I've been a really competitive person and a person who I think what comes, what has come naturally to me historically is to be that kind of person who's like looking around at what other people has and saying, you know, oh, okay, I need to like catch up with them or like, move past them or like compete with them in some way. And polyamory really helped me in a big way with addressing those feelings in my life and like trying to move past them and saying, you know what, when we're cooperative, when we all work together and get along, like, well, at least when it comes to polyamory, like we'll all be happier. We'll all get laid more. We'll all have more of a sense of community and a sense of support structures. And then when shit does hit the fan, were that much stronger. And I think this has not just uh, happened in my relationships, but it's like bled over to other parts of my life now, where in my career, in my work, I have like a much more collaborative um, view of things. And I say, you know what, a rising tide lifts all boats. Like, let's all try to support each other and do better work and not say like, oh, okay, you know, my news outlet had the breaking story. So I'm somehow, you know, better than you or like, you know, we had this exclusive, like, we should all be working on adding to, you know, the public knowledge and like, making things better. I remember when I first moved to Chicago for college, uh, my mom asked me, like, what do you think you're going to do with some of your free time? Like, so think about it. It's your first Friday night. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm probably going to go eat oatmeal in the library and read. And like, that's what I'm going to do on my Friday nights. Or like, I'll go to the bookstore and read and then I'll go to the library. Like whichever setting I guess is more conducive to eating oatmeal. Like that was truly <laughs> how I thought of myself. I thought of myself as a recluse, as like someone who just like wanted to be alone in her thoughts and like didn't, was really kind of like inherently mistrustful of other people. And it, turned out that that was just because I was like, you know, a disgruntled teenager and didn't like the people that I grew up around. You know, I just hadn't found the people I felt like I fit in with. And now polyamory has made me 
this is actually one of the, this is the biggest change, definitely, that I'm a much more social person. Uh, I see the value in connections and making more connections. And um, I've come to like really crave a diverse social network, you know, where like I used to definitely like fantasize about living alone and living a really solitary and like navel gazy life. Now, what excites me the most is the notion of living with more people and building a sense of community and like a sense of like shared uh, purpose. So thanks, polyamory. I will not die alone now. (laughs) (laughs) It really did its job. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. It it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And it's just been really amazing. Thank you so, so much. So I also want to take this opportunity to thank our audience for listening tonight. Uh, this has been another entry in the PolyStory repository. I am Joe. I'm Tim. I'm Rachel. That's, that's Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Come join us again for another episode where we talk about intimacy, relationships, change, society, you name it.